Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Wonger. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast. Uh, we're excited to be here today, and bear with me because I'm, I'm being casual today because I'm wearing a t-shirt, Boat Whiskey. Of course, that would come from uh, someone that works at the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States uh, because obviously uh, engagement in government relations and public policy advocacy is critically important uh, for the spirits industry. And I think everybody should be aware uh, about a year ago, we launched the Spirits United, uh, Spirit United platform really to engage uh, uh, those who love this great industry to be advocates for our industry on key policy issues. But today we've got a special day because we're here with Mark Gillespie. Uh, he leads Whiskey Cast, which is a great podcast. And uh, uh, he is usually on the other side of uh, the docket doing the interview, but we were really excited uh, to ask Mark to join us today just because he's got such great knowledge and experience, uh, you know, all over the world, uh, being an advocate and a promoter of the distilled spirits industry. So, Mark, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chris. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So you were really you were really breaking ground. 2005, I think, in the early days, you were one of the first uh, to launch a podcast and all of the above. Just... Tell us a little bit about your your backstory and how you got here. And uh, again, thank you for joining us and thank you for your leadership for the industry. Well, thank you, Chris, uh, for the opportunity. Basically, I'm doing this because my father always said when I was growing up that I would make a living with my mouth. And this was the, one of the few legal ways I could do it. Um, I started out my very first radio job the day I got out of high school in Columbus, Indiana, January 18th, 1980, and uh, spent the entire my entire career in broadcast news and journalism and eventually made the transition to online journalism. And in 2005, Apple had just introduced podcast support for the iPods. If you remember the old things, yeah, yeah, yeah. it wasn't a phone. It was just a music player at the time. We didn't know what it was going to become and how important it was going to become in our lives. At the time, I was working as a, a producer for a, a company based here in New Jersey, uh, producing all of our broadcast content for CNN and running a broadcast studio in central New Jersey. The company, which shall not be named, uh, we got the bright idea that maybe podcasting might be something we should explore because we were already doing news content and uh, breaking news content. And the powers that be thought, well, we should at least look at podcasting. I was the person who was going to have to make it all work. And I said, let's hold on, guys. I need to play with this for a little bit and experiment and see what we're getting ourselves into. Because the last thing you want to do on a corporate side, when you've got a brand name that the public knows, is start a podcast and then kill it after a few weeks because of the pain in the neck factor. Sure. So I thought about it. And I had thought earlier in 2005 about, hmm, wonder if there's a whiskey podcast that I could do. 
And I wound up taking my recording gear to uh, Whiskey Fest in New York in early November of 2005. Mark, did you have an early passion for whiskey at that time? You I had have. developed a passion for it, but it was later in life. I didn't. I had developed it maybe uh, about eight, nine years earlier. It was when I first really discovered that I liked whiskey. <laughs> and at that point, I wanted to know everything I could about it. I have this habit as a journalist of going down rabbit holes. And if I find something I like, I get obsessed by it and want to learn everything I can about it. And that's what I had been doing with whiskey. Part of it was to test the uh, podcast technology, but also because I wanted to learn about whiskey and I learned about things by asking people. And I figured this would give me the chance to talk to distillers and blenders and people who love whiskey and I was going to learn more from it. So it was my educational experience at first. I went back, produced a few episodes of Whiskey Cast. And then went back to the brain trust and said, yeah, we can do this. Here's what we have to do IT-wise. Here's how we make it work. And I kept producing Whiskey Cast and went on from there. Um, several months later, the company uh, stopped producing broadcast content, kept producing the podcast content, but closed my studio in New Jersey, moved it to Washington, D.C., laid me off and hired a kid at a third of my salary to produce the podcast. Oh, no. It happens. Oh, no. Yep. But I kept doing it, landed a job several, a couple of months later at uh, Bloomberg Television in New York, I kept producing this on the side. And in 2009, the financial crisis really took hold. As you well know, uh, we lost 100,000 journalism jobs in that 2008-2009 time period. My job at Bloomberg was one of them. I survived the first round of layoffs in the company's history. In February of 2009, I did not survive the second round in July. After a few months of having one job interview and no prospects and a little bit of ad revenue coming in from the show, my family, my wife, Christina, my business partner now, and our three daughters sat me down for one of these come to Jesus meetings. And they said, yeah, this podcast has some potential, but you stink on the business side. <laughs> and they said, you can keep doing it, but you got to turn it over to mom on the business side. You can keep doing the content, but you got to let mom handle the business side because that's her specialty. It's not yours. Yep. I said, okay. And ever since then, it has paid most of the bills, most of the time, but it has become our full-time job for both of us. And she runs the business side. She is the managing director of Cask Strength Media, our family production company. And she runs all the business side and produces a little bit of the content. And it frees me up to do things like this and produce all of our content. And as a result, I have the greatest job in the world because uh, the lesson I learned from that was that uh, I've always been a bit of a control freak. I want everything to be right. And I think in my idea, by squeezing it and controlling things, I get it done my way. I learned that by letting go of the business side and giving up some control, we became far more successful than I would have done on my own. If it had been up to me and I'd kept on 
running the business side, um, WhiskeyCast would have died years ago. Good for you, that intervention. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that's exactly what it was. Effort. I tell you, I've had the opportunity uh, to be on the other side of you. And uh, <laughs> uh, what has struck me about you, Mark, is uh, you'll ask me, look, my job is to be a public policy expert. Uh, of course, in my role at Discus, I've got to oversee and manage a man in one issues, <laughs> but you'll, you'll ask me questions about like tariffs and you'll know, uh, as much or more about, uh, w- what you're asking than I do. And I got to tuck and roll sometimes. And that is a testament that, uh, you're just a naturally very curious person, I think. And obviously like any good, uh, journalism or, or reporter, uh, you do your homework, uh, and it's really, really amazing. I mean, could you could you talk about you know just that curiosity bone? Uh, and what's great about this story that we're hearing is uh, you are so passionate at what you do. Uh, so, just tell us about you know what 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 drives that curiosity bone, and and how you prepare because. Uh, the, the preparation that you bring forward is, is just self-evident uh, every time that we visit, for sure. And anytime you do the podcasts uh, with brand managers and all of the above. Well, part of being a reporter is doing the research and having at least knowing what you want to ask. And after doing this for so many years, you build up some institutional memory. One of the things that uh, being a business reporter for many years helped me understand how tariffs work and how trade works and how the whole WTO international trade structure works. And that gives me an advantage over a lot of my colleagues in the spirits space because they cover the spirits industry. And that may be what they cover on a day-to-day basis. And because I've covered other things in the past, because I've covered crime and the courts and understand how the criminal justice system works and have covered a lot of different things over the years, it brings a natural institutional memory that I can draw on when I'm doing a story. For instance, uh, in the last podcast, we had three different stories on crime involving the whiskey industry. And because I had covered courts and covered police and understood how things work in the court system, uh, for instance, we have in the Operation Varsity Blues case, the uh, college admissions scandal, one of the people that is still yet to be tried or has yet to plead guilty is a distillery owner and also owns a is a partner with her husband in a wine and spirits distribution company in California. That's right. right. So one of the things I did was immediately check on what happens if that, if she's convicted, what does the federal government and what do the state governments do? Because I know from having covered the legal side of things that uh, the governments generally have a problem with convicted felons holding liquor licenses. So what I did was check with the TTB. Their policy is that as long as it's not an alcohol or a tax-related issue, 
they're not going to jump on it. So a bribery case wouldn't be enough to lose their federal DSP or their federal basic alcohol permit. But in Kentucky and in California, there are specific rules that uh, ban those in Kentucky. Anyone convicted of a felony crime is ineligible to hold a liquor license, including a distillery license. And in California, if you're convicted of a crime of moral turpitude, which the ABC board in California does consider bribery to be among one of those crimes. It's not specifically stated in the statute, but I checked with their ABC board and they said, yes, if someone is convicted of a bribery case and convicted of bribery, then we would immediately start an investigation and start looking to either suspend or revoke their permits to operate in California. So, that's something that a lot of people might not have thought about or seen the whiskey related or seen how that case affects the whiskey industry. But when I see something like that, I start looking for ties to make sure there's no connections. Absolutely. I mean, that right. I hope that explains it. Oh yeah. That's just a testament on how you dig, you dig deep on an issue. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate, uh, you know, in the country over the last 10, 15 years about journalism and so forth. But What's unique about you is uh, you, you, you're a pure journalist in, in the greatest sense of things. And it, it's, it's really something that uh, the ind- industry should uh, uh, greatly appreciate. So whiskey cast- Your lips to uh, God's ears there, Chris. I appreciate it. I I just need to emphasize on that point, if I can. Uh, Yes, we take advertising on whiskey cast. That's because I like food. I like having a roof over my head. And I like having the ability to do webcasts like this with you and podcasts, but that costs money. And if I'm going to make this my full-time job, we have to have advertising. But- We make it clear to any company that talks to us when the first conversation we have when they talk to us about advertising is you understand you will not get any editorial control over our content, right? And until they say yes, we don't go any further. Uh, You can't buy a spot on in our news content or in our features. We'll take their ideas and we may run with them, but we decide here what goes on the show. And we don't take commercial concerns into it. I've lost, we have lost a lot of business over the years because we didn't want to pander to that. Sure. And because we made advertisers mad. I would imagine because there's always an interest of trying to get your brand out there and promote it and so forth. So I, I would imagine uh, not calling into the integrity of, of those that are invested and in exploring that with you. But I could imagine where some of those pressure points happen. And uh, good for you, because that upholds the integrity of the platform. Well, you see, so, in, when I was working in broadcast newsrooms, I was always the one who would sound the alarm whenever the advertising guys came into the newsroom. They would do the check your integrity, time pimp in the room. And uh, I I lovingly refer to the sales guy, ad guy, advertising sales guys that we used to work with as the time pimps. Um, They didn't like it very much, but uh, now that I am sort of one, I understand where they were coming from. But that's why we let, uh, that's why we have Christina handle most of that. She deals with the advertising, she serves as the publisher and deals with the business side so that I only have to deal with the content. And if they've got a complaint about content, they come to me 
And if they have a complaint about anything else, they go to her and we get it resolved. No, no doubt. Good for you. And the platform's uh, up in 180 countries, right? You've, you've been all over the world. Well, the podcast uh, has been all over the world. I haven't yeah. been, but the okay. podcast has been heard all over the world. Yeah. And as we live in, you know, COVID-19 environment, a lot of the, a lot of the conferences, you and I were together. I can't remember when it was now. Uh, maybe it was last fall, the, the great keepers of the quake dinner uh, yep. up in New York uh, that we did. Uh, I, in large part of you stayed kind of parked in, at home uh, doing your work as, as a result of the social distancing and everything kind of put on hold. Well, it was interesting in the, let me just sort of give you my schedule from February through mid-March. Um, Mid-February, I was at the World Whiskey Forum in Seattle while you guys were having the Discus Conference in Louisville. Yep. Then I had to come back and a couple of days after I got back, I flew out to Lexington for the Beam Institute Conference at the University of Kentucky for two days. Then came home from that on a Friday and immediately on Sunday, flew to New Zealand for 10 days for a dram fest in Christchurch. I remember that. Yeah. Got back on March 10th and went straight into lockdown. And wow. until two weeks ago, I had not been more than 10 miles from my house since March. Two weeks ago, I had to drive out to uh, Kentucky and Missouri for a project that we're in the uh, second season of production on Tales from the Hill, the, uh, the podcast we produced for Heaven Hill. And there were some elements that we just couldn't do via Zoom. So I had to go out and wear a mask and things like going out to warehouses and cooperages. You can't get natural sound on Zoom real easily. So I had to go out and do that. But that was the first time I had been away from home since March 10th. Really significant and good for you for staying safe. I've had uh, the opportunity to make a couple of road trips uh, to visit some distilleries. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm proud to say in large part, all the distilleries uh, we visited, of course, we, we practice the social distancing and the face masks and all that type stuff. Well, there's a lot going on within the industry, Mark, as you know, uh, from the tariffs that we've talked about, from the craft beverage modernization tax reform uh, act to uh, the marketplace changes that are happening, you know, the impact on, on, on and off premise across the board, not only here in the United States, but all over the world. Could you just give us your perspective about you know, where the industry is today. I mean, the spirits industry is, has done so great over the last 10, 15 years where consumers are gravitating to great brands all over the world. Uh, just give me a perspective on, on where you think the industry is today and uh, what, are, what are, from your perspective, being an expert on all of this, what do you think is around the corner for the industry as a result of COVID and just the marketplace changes? Well, the last thing I would call myself is an expert. Um, I understand a lot, but there's many things I still don't know about this business. But uh, the one thing I do know is that um, COVID has basically taken what we knew at the start of 2020, thrown it into a blender and put it on high because nothing is going to be the same. Um, I don't know where we're headed on this. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, but 
I think what we're going to see is it's going to take two to three years at least for tourism to come back. We had all these distilleries investing in massive visitor centers and putting a lot of money into those because in places like Kentucky, there were tax breaks involved. And yes, it's good for promotion, but if people aren't able to to travel, then you've got empty space sitting that you can't monetize and you've got people that you're going to have to lay off. Um, That's one thing that worries me. I am really worried about your colleagues in the craft industry. Um, I saw the study that came out uh, just a few days ago that you released that uh, the craft distillers have lost at least 41% of their sales. And that's estimated at something like $700 million. That on top of the earlier surveys that showed that maybe as many as half of our craft distillers that have just popped up over the last few years may not be able to survive the COVID lockdowns and the economic damage because we still have bars closed in many states. Uh, A lot of tasting rooms are still shut down. And one of the things that those folks depend on is the sales in their tasting rooms because we know that distributors don't have as big an incentive to take on a small craft distiller and try to get them into the retail and bar space. So the little guys have to focus on what they can sell themselves. Well, if you can't let people taste it at your tasting room, it's going to be really hard to sell them on a $50 bottle of whiskey. And I'm afraid we're going to lose some of those folks. With the advent of cocktails to go, I think that's a great idea. Uh, With the advent of direct-to-consumer shipping, from distilleries in the states where that's allowed. I think that could be a game changer, but what we really need to see is more across the board adoption in some of the bigger states. Um, I live in New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia, and the horror stories I hear from my friends over in Philly about dealing with the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board are legendary. I mean, I'm even afraid, technically, if I'm driving out to Kentucky and I throw a bottle in the back of my car to take out to a friend out there, technically, I'm breaking the law if I drive through Pennsylvania with it and I get caught. Um, Part of the 21st Amendment, I think, when it repealed prohibition, obviously, that was a good thing. But... I think it wound up giving the states too much individual power over alcohol sales. And we don't have any consistency as a result of that. Um, That's, I think, something that I don't think we can fix that without another constitutional amendment. And I don't think that's going to happen. So I don't know where things are going as far as the direct direct to uh, consumer shipping issue. It's... I get questions about it all the time. How can they legally do this? How can I legally order whiskey? And I'm going, it all depends on what stage you're in. And it might even depend on what county and what town you live in for crying out loud, because we have literally thousands of different regulations around the country. Um, Technically I live in a dry town in New Jersey. We've joked about this for years on the show about Haddonfield being the charming yet regrettably dry town of Haddonfield. It was dry before prohibition and remained dry after prohibition. I've got, I happen to live on literally my, our backyard borders on the town limit. So I have three pubs, 
and at least two liquor stores within walking distance in the next town over. Amazing. There's one pub that's uh, literally around the corner from us where the town line goes through the parking lot. The building with the bar is in the wet town next to us while the parking lot is in my town. That's nuts. That's nuts. So, yeah, it's just, I don't, I'm not always a fan of regulation at the national level, but I think some consistency would help here. Sure. And those are, uh, you've listed all, all uh, multiple things that certainly uh, discus will have a role uh, to help navigate uh, for the industry uh, is 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 you just rattled off you know multiple issues uh, about complexities and and challenges that our industry has to grapple with. Uh, if you don't mind, if I ask, I mean, how important is uh, for the industry from your perspective to be engaged in the public policy process? And, you know, this is a little bit of a sidebar promotion, but how important is organizations like Discus uh, for the industry to get involved with? Uh, uh, whether it's bartenders or it's the distillers, of course, uh, or even if it's employees across, you know, all the various businesses and even the supply chain. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, yeah. Um, my family, my uh, Christina, has worked with, worked with a number of trade associations over the years. And I think they're essential because you have enemies out there in the alcohol business, beverage alcohol business. You have people who don't like the fact that Spirit sales are at an all-time high. Um, people who are challenging the alcohol industry on health issues, on driving while intoxicated, which nobody supports, but which some groups want absolutely draconian um, measures on. Um, and you'll never get me to be an advocate for driving while intoxicated. As a reporter, I covered far too many accidents out in the field where I showed up where somebody had been driving drunk. I mean, you will not catch me ever doing it because one, I generally don't drink in bars unless I'm traveling. And two, I wouldn't, it's, I've seen what happens. I wouldn't do it. But I think that uh, trade associations are essential, not only on the public policy front, because you need to speak with a unified voice. And yes, we know that each individual company needs to have its own, people arguing for its own interests. But whenever any group can speak to 535, shall we say, highly um, motivated individuals on Capitol Hill, plus the folks in the administration, you need one group generally that can do it all, or they can speak with one voice for the industry. And on top of that, you've got just the communication within the organization. Um, distilling is one of those great industries where people do communicate with each other. But to have a forum where you can share best practices, where you can communicate with each other on, hey, we're having this problem with uh, powder post beetles in our rickhouses in Kentucky. Um, you guys out in the rest of the country might not have this problem, but you need to know about termites and stuff. Here's what we've been doing. Here's how you solve that problem as we get more and more distillers with more and more rickhouses. 
things like that. It's just communication. And uh, in talking, I mean, there's this old cliche that a rising tide lifts all boats. When you work together and you're all pulling in the same direction, then you can compete with each other on the little stuff. But if you're fighting each other on the big stuff, you got a problem. Yeah, it's interesting, Mark. You know, look, uh, I've worked on the, the 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 company side of the business, and now in the in the role leading both Discus and Responsibility dot org. Uh, you know, ninety percent of the issues. Uh, for the industry, we can all agree on uh, the craft and the larger companies. Sure, there's going to be issues that come up that may be more competitive, market access issues that may be more competitive with one company versus another. And one of the things that I've been trying to do uh, at Discus, uh, just because of the history of Discus, the resources that we are afforded thanks to our member companies is really ultimately to position Discus uh, to be a unifying uh, force uh, for the industry. And uh, I'm very invested in working with uh, the other important stakeholders in the industry. I think there's an opportunity there. And uh, we didn't tee this up, but you being on message about that uh, really uh, it's something that I've thought a lot about, and I hope uh, uh, my aspiration is, you know, ultimately, Discus can play a really positive role uh, in, in helping to unify our industry on the big, big issues that really count. Uh, because the industry's had a lot of success over the last 15 years, but we've got a lot of challenges right around the corner, whether it's health issues, uh, uh, cannabis in the marketplace changes, consumer convenience, pressure points on the three-tier system, which Discus fully supports, of course, but then you've got the issues related to the direct shipping to consumers, helping to support our on-premise and all of the above. So uh, Discus and me, to some degree, hopefully if I have the confidence of our of our member companies are going to be in the thick of it to lead it. Uh, so would appreciate your perspective on that. Well, let me give you the perspective from a journalist. Uh, the other thing that being able to speak with one voice helps. When we're talking about the tariffs issue, I can call, I can spend a day or two calling all the major spirits companies and trying to get their take on what the tariffs are doing and, and what they're trying to do. I can call you guys and get the answer because you've talked with everybody and you've got the answer and you can speak on behalf of the industry. That's important to me. That's why I call you all the time, Chris, because uh, I know that discus that's your job is to have your finger on the pulse of the industry and speak for your members. So that's why I call you guys all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think if you don't speak, as an industry with a unified voice, it's the old, another cliche that we shall all either hang together or we shall hang separately. If you hang together, you got a better chance of surviving. Absolutely. And there are, uh, uh, one of the things that I aspire, there are a lot of people in the industry that aren't as engaged on some of these issues. So hopefully, uh, 
as we continue at Discus, like we did the, our first annual conference uh, in February, and our next one's going to be, God willing, is going to be scheduled in October in Austin, Texas. Uh, I hope that, that Discus can play a positive role uh, with that. And also working with our distributor and retailer partners, we've all got some pretty significant issues that we're going to have to grapple with. Some of these issues, like the direct shipping issue, are going to make you know some some uh, third party stakeholders or important stakeholders uncomfortable. Uh, but this is where uh, you know we can all either hang separately or uh, win win the challenges and win the war together for sure. Uh, just going on a little bit of a lighter note, tell us uh, you have had the chance to interview. Uh, some great characters around uh, around around the horn. Uh, do you have a particular story you'd want to share with us? Well, let me share one from a year ago when I was down in Australia. Um, we went to um, Belgrove Farm Distillery in Tasmania. Peter Bignell makes some really really great rye whiskeys and some really good whiskeys overall. But if you show up at the distillery, you'd look at this and you'd go, holy crap, because it is a farm distillery. This guy peats his whiskey, among other things, with the peat that he dries in one of these converted washer-dryer units that you'd find in a small apartment with the washer on top and the uh, washer on the bottom and the dryer on top, the up and over things. He uses the uh, washer part as his steep to soak the uh, barley and then dries it with the peat smoke, running it through the vent coming through uh, and all that. He has also made, feel free to bleep this, a whiskey that he calls holy sh- <laughs> with its W-H-O-L-L-Y. And the reason he calls it that is because he smoked it with sheep dung from his from the sheep on his farm. Oh mercy. And it really it's that's actually not bad. I mean, obviously it's just this aroma, but it's got this grassy because it's all grass-fed sheep and heather-fed sheep. So it's got this heathery aroma to it. It's actually really kind of good. But when you walk in his distillery, it's he's got barrels up in the rafters of the barn. Everything is jammed together. I mean, you're looking at this. I looked at his still, and I swear to God, there was a piece of duct tape sealing a hole in the still. <laughs> and I'm looking at this, and I'm going, uh, Peter, has the fire marshal been in here recently? He goes, oh, no worries, mate. I'm on the fire department here. It's okay. <laughs> I'm going, Oh God! <laughs> yeah, it's it's stories like that that uh, I'm going to put together a video piece because I shot video of all this, and I've still got to put together the piece on it. But uh, it is just the passion that he has, and he makes these amazing whiskeys. And you would you would think it was coming out of a a pristine laboratory like environment. Multi-million dollar distillery. Yeah, and it's coming out of it's coming off the farm. And that is the passion that whiskey inspires. And that's what makes that's what makes this job so much fun. Absolutely. It's it's characters like that, uh, no doubt. So uh quick quick question. If you could have a cocktail with anybody, 
anyone famous. Let's go with that. Anyone famous, dead or alive, uh, who would be that one person that you would have a cocktail with? That's a really good question. I'm going to pick somebody not so famous who should be more famous. I would love to go back and have a drink with Nearest Green. I want to get that story of, I want to get the story about distilling as an enslaved person back in the day, having this skill that the people who owned you didn't have, or the people who leased you, because when he was working for Dan Call, he was leased. He wasn't owned by Dan Call, the Reverend Call. He was leased from a company just like uh, today's temporary employment agencies. He was leased by a corporate slave owner to that uh, to the reverend to work on the farm and i would love to sit down and talk with him and get and learn more about that because uh, i think it's those are stories we need to hear that the records are gone they were largely destroyed after the civil war except for just a handful of records that have survived and we don't have those stories and i would love to go back and get those stories i i really think we need more diversity and we need to recognize the diversity that helped build the american whiskey industry and that sadly we don't have now Um, we're getting it slowly but it should have been there all along and it didn't need to be that way yeah, that is that is fascinating. As a matter of fact, I was scheduled to go down and visit the distillery uh, next week. As a matter of fact, but obviously it's been put on hold because of COVID. But uh, that is that is fascinating. I, I bet you uh, that gentleman, uh, you know, certainly the stories and the perspectives that he could provide, yeah. uh, just very historical. Uh, uh, that that is that is an awesome one. I, that, that one is the best one that we've gotten to date. On that. He's also so, supposedly, according to Fawn Weaver, who found the documentation for this, he supposedly is the one who at least explained the Lincoln County process of charcoal filtering to Jack Daniel. Is that right? And yeah. that's what I, I want to ask about that. How did you discover it? How and where did it come from? And how did how was this all figured out? We're looking forward to doing a podcast with Fawn here in the next couple of weeks, as a matter of fact. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's going to provide a lot of perspective, obviously, from the diversity front, the equality front, which are critical, critical issues for our industry to, 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 to take on for sure. And as we're living in this, these unique times for our country. So, well, Mark, on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council and uh, the Spirited Advocate podcast, uh, a big cheers and thank you to you and your leadership, your great journalism, uh, your great focus on issues that really matter to our industry. And uh, we just appreciate you and we appreciate the time that, uh, that you've afforded us today. Thank you for having me, Chris, and cheers. Great cheers. The Spirited Advocate podcast was brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. If you'd like to be a guest speaker on the show or send us topic suggestions to cover, please contact us at podcast at distilledspirits.org. And please like and share these episodes. Your support is very appreciated.